0: I took an online test this week. It was a "Am I a good person test?" Anybody ever taken an "Am I a good person" test?" Uh, if you were wondering, I passed with flying colors. Uh, among other questions, the test asked me if I ever cheated on a test, or if I've ever cheated to win a board game?" Uh, to which I answered yes to both. So I was a liar. Uh, You could pass this test, too, according to the test, as long as you didn't uh, rob a bank or uh, drink and drive. I mean, that was really the subjective markers of what was considered good and what was considered not good. And just for giggles, I went back and retook the test, and I answered the worst possible answers that you could give to the test... And as I answered the worst possible, I mean, I, was, I would have been an adulterer, I'd have been a murderer, I was, I was a dr- drunk driver, I was a bank robber, all these things. And when I hit submit on the last question, it says, uh, you're not as good as you could be. I mean, that was, the, that was the bottom of the barrel was, you're still good, you're just not as good as you could be. You see, the problem with this, the problem with a subjective tool like this am I a good person test is that someone had based the standards of this test off of their opinion of what it means to be a good person. And even though I admitted to being a liar twice, I was still, according to this person, a good person. I was still good. But... When I turn to Exodus 20, the list of the Ten Commandments, if you're not familiar with your Bible, uh, it says there very clearly in verse 16 that you shall not lie, and that if you lie, you are guilty of breaking God's law. And so according to the world's standards, I was a good person, but according to God's law, I was guilty, and I was not a good person. Well, you see, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinner to repentance. Now, the problem with that, the hinge for you and I, is we first have to recognize something, that we are not good. Right? If Christ came to save the sinner, either I'm a sinner or Christ didn't come for me at all. And what we have to understand is that genuine salvation is a gift from God offered to the unrighteous. That is, it's a gift, and it's only offered to one kind of person. And as we'll see this morning, that there is only one kind of person. It is the unrighteous person. And without understanding God's objective moral standards for good, that is, we are in danger of thinking we can get to God on our own goodness. You see, this morning I want you to turn to Luke 18 in your Bible. Turn to Luke 18. And in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18, we see Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. And as he's on his way to Jerusalem, he encounters a young man certain of his own goodness before God. We see a young man who encounters Christ and he says, I'm good, just tell me what I need to do to continue being good enough. And we see him there in verse 18. He asks a really important question to Jesus, at least in his mind. He looks at verse 18 and we read, it says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In the Matthew's account of the rich young ruler in chapter 19 verse 16 it says this good teacher what good deed must i do to inherit eternal life the the context and the question was clear in the mind of the rich young ruler it was all about what he could do to attain his righteous standing before god and see, the heart behind it was, tell me what I can do to be saved. How can I become good enough? Let me know what I need to do to be right before a holy God. And before Jesus takes on the leading question, he primes the rich young ruler with a meaningful rhetorical question. He says, before I get to your question, uh, here's a better question. Jesus asked in verse 19, why do you call me good? Yeah, that's, that's what we see. He said, good teacher. And Jesus, realizing his subjective, that is the rich young ruler's subjective moral compass, that he had an opinion about what being good was, but he had no idea what it meant to be truly good. And so he asked Jesus, or Jesus asked him, why do you call me good? You know, no one is good except God alone. You see, if you're in here uh, and you're shaking a little bit because your idea of the Trinity And Jesus being fully God is in question because Jesus says only God is good and why do you call me good? Obviously, I'm not good if God is only good. This isn't a quote where Jesus denies his deity. This isn't a quote at all where Jesus says, I'm not God. Jesus is simply doing something important. He's doing this. He's simply setting the objective moral standard of good. He says, you, rich young ruler, you've been saying a lot of things are good. You think you're good. You're saying I'm good. We're just throwing, away, throwing around this word good like it could be anybody. Like me, I could take a test and answer the wrong questions on all 15 and hit submit. And it says, yeah, you're pretty good, but not as good as you could be. I mean, this is the kind of subjective moral standard that the rich young ruler is doling out in, in Jesus. And so Jesus says, listen, before we begin, before I answer your question, you need to understand something foundational. Only God is good. And he says, let's go back to the original question, verse 18. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus says, you know the commandments. You were raised in them. You know them. Uh, At least he names a few of them. Uh, Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And the rich young ruler answers in verse 21, All these I have kept from my youth. That's bold, isn't it? That's a bold statement. Because if the rich young ruler paused and took a frank look at his life, he could probably find one time in his life where he wasn't completely honest. Surely, mom and dad in here, he could have found a moment in his life where he did not honor his mother and father. Right? I mean, surely we can look at those, and if he just stopped and paused for a moment, he could see that he, too, had already broken just the ones that Jesus had named, and he has not even finished naming the commandments. But instead, the rich young ruler hears Jesus say, only God is good, and he enthusiastically, enthusiastically responds, me too. Me and God, we're both good. Like, I'm good, God's good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good enough for God. And he was kidding himself. And that's the point number one on your outline, is this is what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to kid yourself. Like, don't kid yourself about your own goodness. Make sure that you look at your life, and when Jesus brings the commandments before you, you can look at those and say, obviously, I'm not good compared to God. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, he's quoting Psalm 14. And in Romans 3, 10 through 12, Paul says this. It was written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's pretty objective and that's pretty comprehensive. As we live and as we breathe and as we exist, all people under heaven, not a single one, is good, except for the rich young ruler. He said he was good. The reality of what we have to do as people that live here on earth, people who live under the rulership of God, is we need to deny any self-affirmation of personal goodness. You have a world, and I have a test that I took, and I specifically looked for this test this week because I knew they were just abounded all throughout the Internet. Am I a good person? And so we so often want to be good. We want to be seen as good people, and we want to go seek the self-affirmation. I want to do good things because I'm a good person, or I want you to see me as good so I live a certain way. And what I'm saying, what Scripture is telling us to do, is you got to deny any idea that you can be self affirmingly a good person. Like, you're, you're not a good person. Uh, your heart bears witness to the fact that you're not a good person. The things that you think, the things that you imagine, the things that you ought not say, so you won't, but you think them anyway. I mean, the reality is we got to just throw everything out on the table and say, I'm not a good person. Uh, the problem with subjective goodness and subjective morality is uh, we do me versus you. Right? It's me versus you. My goodness compared to your goodness. Well, compared to the worst people in the world, I'm pretty good. And the problem when it's you compared to me uh, is I can be good compared to you. But the real comparison is me compared to thee. Right? I have to always compare myself to the objective moral standard of good. And Jesus makes it very clear there is only one who is good. And so all of my objective moral standards are set at God. And if anything that I do falls short of God, I therefore, according to the objective moral standards of God, am not good. Have we torn each other down enough? Have I torn you down? Have I torn me down enough? It's so important because remember at the beginning of the sermon, right, Jesus came to save sinners, right? That's the good news. But we have to first realize that we're sinners because if not, even as I have in my notes, if you are not unrighteous, then Jesus didn't die for you. Everyone says, Jesus came for me. Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. If you're you're unrighteous, if you're a sinner, he came for you. If you're perfect, if you're good, if you're righteous, he literally said, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've called sinners to repentance. He says, if you're good enough, then Jesus didn't die for you. But point number one, don't kid yourself. You're not good. You and I, we're not good. Therefore, Jesus came and died for you. See, that's the reality, and we have to come to the conclusion that we can't kid ourselves about our own subjective goodness. Of course, in your mind, you could be good because you have a subjective understanding of goodness. But when we take goodness from the Word of God and say, what does God say is good? We all know from an objective standard we are not good. Continuing in verse 22. Jesus, in a very practical way, brings up more of the Ten Commandments. And you have to look carefully. You have to know what you're looking for to see what Jesus is doing. But look at verse 22. In verse 22, Jesus heard the man and he said, One thing you still lack. Isn't that great? Would you love Jesus to look at you in the face and say, You lack. You're lacking. And he did. He looked at the rich young ruler and said, You're lacking. Here's what you need to do. Sell all that you have. And distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven where it matters. And then you come and follow me. You see, all Jesus was doing was quoting the the rest of the Ten Commandments in an applicational way. You see, the problem was in verse 23. But when the rich young ruler he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. You see, the rich young ruler was so about keeping the commandments from an outward perspective, from an outward application away. His whole life, he outwardly fulfilled the Ten Commandments, but it was inside, in his heart, he realized when Jesus brought these things up that he, as a matter of fact, didn't keep the Ten Commandments. Because when the God of the universe said, sell all that you have, and the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, the rich young ruler realized immediately, I'm choosing this. Over God. So it it turns out that the rich young ruler had other gods before the God of the universe his self, his finances, his wealth, his belongings. All those things actually came before God, which breaks the second commandment you shall have no idols. There should be nothing that you are not willing to give up for God. And the rich young ruler became very sad because he was extremely rich. He wanted to follow Jesus, but not near as much as he wanted to have his own things and to have his own wealth and to have his own riches. And the call to salvation in the end of verse 22 was, come, follow me. Isn't that the call and offer of salvation to everyone that Jesus says over and over again, come, follow me? There was the offer of salvation. All he had to do was turn from his ways, turn from his riches, turn from the worldly things, turn from his idols, and follow Christ. And it was a done deal. He was saved. He was following Christ. But his heart was wicked and deceitful above all things. And he was a lawbreaker. And so he was extremely sad because he was rich, and he walked away. You see, Jesus said, you broke commandment one, you broke commandment two, and you broke commandment number ten, you shall not covet. You're coveting all those things, and so you buy more and more of it, and you have more and more because you want those things more than you want me. It's coveting. When God asks you to do something, you do it because you have no other God above him. When he asked you to give it all away, what we're saying is, I have no idols in my life. I will give it all away when you tell me to give it all away because, God, you are my God. I have no other God besides you. I will not keep something back because all things I have are yours. And then come follow me. All these things the rich young ruler did not do. And he saw in a mirror that he too broke the Ten Commandments that he worked so hard his whole life to keep. And when he heard them, he became sad. He became Very, very sad. I mean, this command that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler isn't a lot different than Luke chapter 9, a verse you guys know very well, Luke 9 23, when Jesus said, If any of you would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. It's a similar command. Jesus didn't change the offer and the expectations of salvation at all. It was the same offer. What you got to do is turn away from yourself. What you got to do is be willing to take on the suffering and the sacrifice of the cross. And you realize when Jesus was saying this in Luke 9, he had not been crucified. So it's not like they can look back like we can and say, I know exactly what it means to take up my cross because, you know, Jesus did. I'm just going to do what Jesus did. Well, Jesus hadn't done it yet. And so all they could see is a picture of the fact that the cross was a cruel thing to be put under. It was a cruel burden to carry. And what Jesus said was, you're going to need to carry it. If you want to follow me, you can't have everything you want. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to say no to yourself and yes to God. You've got to take up your cross. It's the command to take it. Like, it's not just it's bestowed upon you. You're taking it. You're welcoming the burden of the cross. You're welcoming the suffering that is associated with Christ. And then what you're going to do is you're going to follow me. You're not going to follow the world. You're not going to follow the sub- subjective standards of society. You're going to follow me. And alas, the rich young ruler realized, after all, I'm not so good when it comes down to God's objective moral standards. Which was a good place, although it was a bad place, he walked away. It's a good place for you and I to sit for a moment, and I put it this way as point number two. You need to come to grips with your position. Point number two, come to grips with your position. And this is exactly what the rich young ruler did. He came and he was very sad because he realized he was very rich. He finally came to a place. He was fooling himself at the beginning. And Jesus did the most gracious thing he could ever do. He put a mirror up to the rich young ruler and said, Look at yourself clearly for who you are. You are not good as you say you are good. You are as evil and as wicked as the next person. And for us, we need to come to grips with that position. For us, for you and me both to say... Here's where I am. I'm not good. I fooled myself into believing I've been good my whole life, but when it comes down to the bottom of it, I'm not good. I'm not good enough for God. I'm not good enough for any good thing that God could offer me. You see, like the rich young ruler, the apostle Paul came to grips with his own position, but in a whole different way in Philippians 3. I'd like you to flip there to Philippians 3. Go to Philippians 3. Philippians 3, we're going to start in verse Three. You see, Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, and he's bringing up this exact same situation. Of course, it's a, it's a different area, it's a different city, uh, it's years separated, but there's the same concept here. Of this idea that I can be self-righteous, this idea that I deserve something, or that I can be confident in my own flesh. And I know this is we're, we're kicking against. Uh, the goads, if you will, and we're swimming against the currents of culture to look and have to look at each other and say, you're not a good person and I'm not a good person. We live in a culture where it's all about self-affirmation. It's all about how can I be good? You shouldn't tell me I'm not good. I'm good. Don't judge me. It's like the Scripture teaches a completely different truth, the truth, not a truth, that we ought to understand that there is no one who is good, no one righteous, not even one. And Paul brings this up in Philippians 3, in verse 3. He says this, for we are the circumcision. He's talking to the church, and he's using a, a, a distinctly Jewish term. The, the circumcision was the people of God in the Old Testament. But now Jesus, uh, Paul's talking to the church, and he's saying this. For we are the people of God. The circumcision. We are the true people of God who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I would just like to pause in that first verse, and I want you to look at it, and I want you to notice something about you in that first verse, verse 3. What do you notice? Nothing. It had nothing to do with you, did it? It didn't have to do with your righteousness. You didn't make yourself a person of God. You don't even worship on your own power. You're made a people of God by God, and you worship not by your own ability, but by the Spirit of God. And we glory not in ourselves. We glory in who? Church? That was a whisper. I assume we'll be talking a little louder than that in heaven, okay? All right. We're worshiping by the Spirit, and we glory in Christ Jesus, not ourselves. As a matter of fact, there is one thing we do in verse 3. We put no competence in our flesh, none. I have no competence in me and my ability and my capacity outside of the Spirit of God working in me to glorify God in Christ Jesus. And here's what Paul says about his own confidence in his flesh. Look at verse 4. It says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And this is Paul's, this is his resume that he lists out. Circumcised on the eighth day, that just means he's he's been of the people of God since really the first moment you could be. Uh, of the people of Israel, I'm the covenant. I'm part of the covenant family of God. Israel has been God's covenant family since the Old Testament. I am God's people. I've been there. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a great, holy, good tribe. Right, a Hebrew of Hebrews. There is no Hebrew more Hebrew than me. Right, and that's what he's saying. Uh, as to the law, a Pharisee. Like he studied the law. He knows the law. He lived the law. He is the teacher of the law, and he says, as to zeal, that means as a as a conviction and a desire to go do the right thing for God, a persecutor of the church. He says, listen, he thought that the Christian church was an abomination to God. And so unlike most of us, when we see abominations to God, we just say, well, that's terrible. He said, I'm going to go pick up the mantle and I'm going to go take care of the problem myself. That's how zealous he was to make sure that everyone believed right about God. Of course, he was wrong, but he's proving a point. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. There was no one more desirous that people believe the right thing about God than me. As to righteousness, Paul says, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. There was nobody who kept the law better than Paul. But verse 7, but whatever I gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I love this. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. That's, uh, that's British for trash. Okay, just, just kidding. It's a joke. Okay. He counts them as trash in order that he may gain Christ. You know what he thought about his righteousness? Trash. You know what he thought about his law keeping? Trash. Right. You know what he thought about anything that he could offer God? Trash. All of it was trash. And if anyone had a reason to boast before God, it was the Apostle Paul. And all of us could find ourselves a little bit more unrighteous than Paul. And if Paul said it's all trash, then anything that we could offer is trash. We actually read in Scripture that our best is dirty rags to God. The best we could offer Him is dirty rags, is filthy rags. Building you up yet? We'll get there. In order that I may gain Christ, the reality, you want Christ, you're gonna to have to realize that you can't kid yourself. You don't you don't gain Christ by working to Christ. What you can do is you can take some inventory on yourself and your goodness compared to God's objective moral standard. I just, just do that for a moment. Like take some inventory on your life. Right? And, and there's a great inventory list in the Bible in Exodus twenty. Uh, You shall have no other gods before me. I mean, have you ever uh, done anything that put something else before God? Anyone? Okay. Uh, Have you ever served something before you served God? Have you ever thought about something more than you thought about God? Have you ever loved something or someone more than you loved God? Have you ever taken the name of the Lord God in vain? Have you ever used his name in a blasphemous way? What about honoring your father and mother? Anybody ever disrespected their parents in this room? Anyone? Just me? Okay, that's good. Alright. What about murder? Committing adultery? Anybody ever stole something in here? Ever stole anything? Right. What about lying? Anyone ever lied in here? That's the one we'll raise our hand to. Yeah, okay, yeah, right. We've lied, right? You shall not covet. You ever wanted something someone else had? Anyone in this room? You ever wanted something? All I'm saying is there's a list in Scripture that just shows you, hey, compared to this list, how you doing? Just compare that. Just tell me how you're doing right here. Just, just look at this list and say, how, how are you doing in your righteousness? Because if you break one law, you are unrighteous before God, and you're a lawbreaker. And the justice of God must reign in unrighteousness. Right? There must be a penalty to be paid for unrighteousness. We want that every, in every place in society. We want the unrighteous to pay the penalty for their wrong and their sin and their crime-breaking. And all that we have is a just God who's being perfectly just. Anybody who breaks these laws, they're lawbreakers. We need to come to grips with our position that we're all lawbreakers. And I hope, like Paul, when you look at this list, you find yourself wanting. right? You find yourself lacking. You find yourself knowing, "I, I don't measure up to that. The reality is, is I'm not that. And hopefully you don't find yourself like the rich young ruler who cannot see Christ as more valuable than himself. You see, the key to coming to Christ is first by coming to an end of yourself. There is no one who has ever come to Christ who has not first come to an end of themselves because you cannot both have yourself and Christ. And if there's anyone in here that you said, yeah, well, I kind of did, but I didn't really give up myself, then you didn't come to Christ because he tells us that we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow him. Paul says, you count everything else as trash that you may gain Christ. The reality is, is the key to coming to Christ is by coming to an end to yourself. And it's exactly what Jesus says. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. Jesus saw that the rich young ruler was sad, and here's what he had to say. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This has always been a troubling statement for wealthy people. Uh, and dare I say most American people, because when it comes to wealth, you and I, we are the most wealthy people in the history of the world. And you're sitting in this room, you are in the top two, three percent of history's wealthiest people. And Jesus says it very clearly, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Throughout history, people have to figure out, what does that really mean? Are they, uh, is it really a big camel through the eye of a needle? It can't be. That's just ridiculous. Why would that be the case? Or some people say, well, you know, a needle was a, was a little gate that they had that was small, and if a camel would get on its knees and crawl through, it could, it could get through. It would be difficult. You get the point. It would be difficult, but not quite impossible. And if they did it and they worked really hard, you get it, worked really hard? Like What's the whole point of it? <laughs> like, if they worked really hard, they could get through it. I mean, that's that's the, the other alternative interpretations I've heard. Wrong. Literally, Jesus is using hyperbole. He's literally saying, You want to earn your way to salvation? It'd be easier for you to go grab that seven foot camel over there and take this sewing needle and shove that camel through the eye of this needle than for you to work your way to God. It's, it's a lot more poignant, isn't it? Drives the point home a little bit more than working really hard to scurry under a gate. The point was the same. For everyone, that's almost impossible, quite impossible, for anyone to work their way to God. And that's exactly what happens. You look at verse 26. We see, we see Jesus bringing this hyperbolic statement. And then everyone says, whoa, 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 Jesus. Then who can be saved? In Mark's account of this same story, he says that the disciples were exceedingly astonished. They were exceedingly astonished and they said, Then who can be saved? Right? Then who can be saved? If, if we have to put a camel through an eye of a needle, how can anyone in here be saved? And he was saying, If not that man, they're talking about the rich man, right? Because wealth was a, uh, was a sign in, in that time of God's goodness and God's blessing on the person. So if he was rich, then he must have been doing something right. And so when Jesus said this, they were like, Well, if not that guy, then who? If not the successful people, then who's going to make it? If not the rich and wealthy people, who can make it? If he can't, then who can? And Jesus said, ah, this is the better question. Verse 18, that was a question. Ah, That wasn't a great question. This question, this is a really good question. Who can be saved? What if the rich young ruler could have started with that question? That's the question we all must have. If it's impossible to put a camel through the eye of a needle, then who can be saved? You know what Jesus says? Verse 27, he says, No one. No one. It's like, upon no one's ability, no one can be saved. It's impossible. That wealthy man? No. The poor man? No. The man? No. The woman? No. No one. No one. No one can be saved. As a matter of fact, he says it this way for man, it's impossible. There's no way for man left on their own to ever receive salvation. You can't do it, it's impossible. But he says what is impossible with man is possible with God. He laid down the objective moral standard to say there is not a person among us, there is not a person alive that will ever be alive who will ever achieve the objective moral standards of God to ever inherit eternal life. It's impossible. And he says, that's why I'm here. That's why I've come. Because genuine salvation, it's a gift from God offered to the unrighteous. And our only response, the only appropriate response for us, is to turn away from everything that captures our allegiance and follow Christ. The very thing that the rich young ruler wouldn't do. He had things that captured his allegiance, his belongings, his wealth, his possessions. They captured his allegiance. And when the offer of salvation was laid before him, he thought that the things that he had was too much and too good for the offer that was set before him. So who can be saved? Well, not Him. Not anyone who wouldn't first turn away from themselves and turn to God. And that's point number three on your outline. Right? If you want to be saved, right, you've got to realize it's not you. Right? The reality of salvation is this, that you would turn from yourself and you would turn to God. Right. salvation is impossible for me to attain, I can't, there's no good deed I can do, there's no promise I can make, there's no goodness I can have, and there's no law keeping that I can maintain that will save me, or you, or anyone. And Jesus had made it clear that I am the way, that I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, except through Christ. Nothing you can do. There's no way to get to God without turning from yourself and turning to God through Christ. See, there's something interesting about the way that Luke orders the accounts in the Gospel of Luke uh, because uh, you notice I haven't really talked much about rich people because this has got as much to do with rich people uh, as it does poor people. Nothing. The point was proven here that it's impossible for people to go to heaven. But in case you were confused in case you were a little bit offended that that you and I are the richest people and he kind of called us out uh, and saying rich people can't make it into the kingdom of God. Uh, If you would just look 16 verses down, just look in your Bible, go to Luke, go 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 to Luke 18 where we are and just count 16 verses down. I'll do it for you. You end up in Luke 19. Okay. In Luke 19 verse 1, we read a very interesting story about another rich person, about another rich man. Kind of in the same boat as the rich young ruler, but from a world's perspective, a lot more unrighteous. Would you look at Luke 19 with me? In Luke 19, there in verse 1, Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem. The whole time we're here, I mean, he's just slowly making his way from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. And he entered Jericho, and Jesus was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. You know this guy, don't you? He was a chief tax collector and was rich, right? There is your key to understanding the significance of this account. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich, okay? Really what this meant is uh, the Roman Empire had hired Jews to take taxes from the Jewish people in that area, and there was a level of taxation that was across the board that Rome said, we have to have this amount coming from your region, Anything else, you can ask him for whatever else you want and you can keep it. But we have to have this much. And so when we see that he was a chief tax collector, he wasn't just like one of the guys making it up the rope. He was the man. Like there was no one who took more money from the people than that guy right here. And it says, and he was rich. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich, which means this, that no one defrauded more people out of their own money than Zacchaeus. There was no one more unrighteous and wrong and hated in society than that rich man right there. Do you see already the distinction between the rich young ruler who we all kind of have sympathy for? Because he was still going after Christ. We would call him a seeker. You know, he approaches Christ. He said, what do I need to do? Tell me about the gospel. Tell me what I need to do. And Jesus says, nothing. You can do nothing but turn from yourself and follow me. The person that we all think should figure it out, he was right there. I mean, that's the conversation we all want to have at the coffee shop, isn't it? People come up to you, sit down, and they say, can you tell me about Jesus? I just want to respond to God. You're like, that's a win. This is easy. This is is a putt from one foot. But he walked away. And here we are with Zacchaeus. I don't even golf, but that's like making a hole in one and a par four. You know, Zacchaeus is like, that guy, he's just way beyond help. But look what happens. This terrible, unrighteous fraud He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a what? You know, a sycamore tree. Y'all know. Y'all have been in church for a long time. Sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Can we just stop for a moment? Do you, do, you know what, do you see what Luke is doing? He's putting the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus right here so we can see the proper response for even the rich people, for even the most wealthy people. He's saying, the rich young ruler, sell what you have, distribute to the poor, and follow me. He literally just looked at Zacchaeus and said, come down from there and come follow me. I'm gonna, we're coming to eat dinner at your house today. And so he hurried and came down. And even though the rich young ruler was sad and left, you have Zacchaeus who hurried and came down and received him joyfully. That right there is called repentance. Okay? That right there says, I know I'm a fraud. Everyone else knows I'm a fraud. My sin is out in the world. It's not private. It's not hidden. It's not in the dark. Everybody knows I'm a sinner. And I know, what it, I know if I'm coming after you, that means I can no longer do those things because I know you're teaching, I know who you are, Jesus, and I know that I can no longer say that who I am. I've got to turn and I've got to follow you. Salvation has already occurred in the life of Zacchaeus at that moment. Now the rest of it, you're going to see, is the fruits of his repentance that are going to show you just how unsaved, if you will, the rich young ruler was and what it really means to follow Christ. Look, look what happens. Verse 7. And everyone saw it, and they grumbled. Why did they grumble? Because he had gone, Jesus had gone to be a guest of a man who was a sinner. He knew, Zacchaeus knew, I'm a sinner. Right? He, came to, he didn't kid himself. Right? He didn't kid himself. He's like, I'm, I'm a sinner. Right? He came to grips with his position. I'm a fraud. I'm a sinner. I'm a lawbreaker. Right? And he understands that he's got to turn from himself, and he's got to turn to God. And watch what happens. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord. Half of my goods I give to the poor. Half of what I have, given it away. And if I have defrauded, he's saying if I have defrauded, he knows he's defrauded. That's how he became rich. And he's like, I've defrauded people. I'm going to restore it fourfold. He's like, so with half of my money, I'm giving it away. The other half of it, I'm making things right with people because I'm following you. And real repentance means there's a change of mind and a change of my life. And he had turned from himself and he had followed Christ. And you know what Jesus said? Look at verse 9. Today salvation has come to this house. Was it because that Zacchaeus did a whole bunch of good things? Is it because he sold his stuff and gave to the poor and defrauded anyone? And he restored what he defrauded? Is that why he was saved? No. He was saved because he realized that he was a fraud and he was a sinner. That he realized that he needed someone to be righteous on his behalf because he knew that he wasn't righteous. And he knew that nothing he could do would inherit salvation. And so he did the only thing that he could. When Jesus said, come, he went and he followed him. He turned from his way of life and he followed Christ. We call that, in scripture, it employs two big words that talk about what it means to turn and follow and it's repentance and faith. We see Zacchaeus repenting from the life that he was living and following Christ in faith. And you see these two stories juxtaposed together because when you look at the rich young ruler, the offer was the same. You, Jesus didn't have to look at Zacchaeus and said, well, if you want to be saved, your heart condition, You need to sell all you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me. He didn't have to bring that up to Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus already knew. He already knew that. Not that he had to do that to be saved. He knew that that wasn't his heart. His heart issue was not that he had so much stuff and he didn't want to give it away. All Jesus was doing with the rich young ruler is pointing out things like, you can't follow me because you're so in love with the present world that you wouldn't follow me if you had the chance. That's what Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler. He didn't have to say that to Zacchaeus. And you see, the fruit of repentance is exactly what Zacchaeus did. And that's how we know that Zacchaeus is saved and the rich young ruler was not. That the rich young ruler would not follow Christ wanted his stuff more than he wanted God's stuff. Then we have Zacchaeus, who said, Jesus didn't even have to bring up the fruits of the Spirit because the minute that Zacchaeus got saved, the fruits of the Spirit started pouring out of him. I'm going to do whatever you ask me to do, God. I'm going to do everything you want me to do. Why? Because I'm saved, and that's what saved people do. And Zacchaeus knew from that very moment that he didn't save himself. That he knew he was so far away from God, that he could never save himself. His only hopes was to come down from that tree and follow Jesus. And he received him joyfully. You, again, I want you to notice, literally, what Luke is doing. The rich young ruler left, sad. Zacchaeus left, happy. Do you see? It's the response to the gospel. That's what's very clear here. And for you and I, it's to understand that we too have to turn from ourselves and turn to God. And it's called repentance and faith. It's called this, that Christ went to the cross to be the righteous sacrifice that we could have never been. We traded our unrighteousness for his righteousness. We traded our bad for his good and he had to die on the cross because Hebrews says that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. It's a law commandment. Right? You murder, you have the just consequence. Right? You sin, the law states that there has to be a blood sacrifice. It's just the law. That's just what the law is. Christ was the blood sacrifice, the atonement that was sprinkled on all of those who would turn from their sins and trust in Christ. The reality is in Luke 5:32, Christ came to save the not good. Hayden paraphrased version. That is, Christ came not to call the righteous, but to call the unrighteous to repentance. You see, in many places in our life, whether it's relationships, whether it's work, whether it's job, when a case is before us, right, when, when everything is, is out on the table and you have the evidence and it's presented to you, it requires a decision, it requires a response. And the reality is, is when we, we lay down God's word in front of us, everything's out on the table, your goodness doesn't save you, your work doesn't save you, the reality is what saves you is Christ who came to save sinners like me. And if you would turn from your sin, if you would trust in Christ, you too would inherit eternal life. That's the question. That's the question we came in with. How do I get saved? You get saved by turning from your sins and placing your trust in Christ. And my prayer is that people in this room this morning would make that decision and that those who already have would be praying that God would use this sermon and this message to turn people's hearts away from themselves and to him. Let's pray. God, we pray this morning that as we look at your word and we see that genuine salvation is a gift from you that you've offered to the unrighteous, God, just even uh, the ridiculousness of a statement that those who didn't deserve got something good, right? that your mercy has won out, that your grace has been pouring and overflowing to people who don't deserve your unmerited favor. God, just to realize that so much of what takes our attention, and this is why over and over again you tell us, don't have any idols, don't have any idols, make sure that, 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 that money is, is, a, is a root of all evil why? Because there's so many things that we have in this present age that takes us away from what really matters. And God, your word has such a way to put your put its finger right on the problem of our life. God that we are unrighteous and that we would follow so many things other than you. But for those who would, even as your word says, to those who would trust in you, that would believe in your name, that would turn from their sins and trust in you, you have given them the privilege of being children of you. And I pray, God, this morning for people to come to repentance and faith, for people to to come to know you and to receive salvation. And God, I pray that even as this morning continues, God, we would see the fruit of salvation in this church and in this community. We pray all of those things in Christ's name. Amen.